tonight's thought. Do you really learn everything that you need to know in life? In kindergarten? Yeah, this is an old question, but uh, it's a meaty one. First posed by a minister turned author named Robert Fulgham in a 1986 book uh, where he theorized that, uh, yeah, everything you, you need to know in order to have a successful and uh, full and fruitful life. You, you learn when you're five years old. Some of, the, some of the lessons include... Let me pull them up here. Uh, share everything. Play fair. Don't hit people. Put things back where you found them. Flush. Warm cookies and cold milk are good for you, and take a nap every afternoon. I noticed that uh, doing taxes isn't on the list. Learning how to do taxes or uh, good investment advice. But I do agree with that last bit about uh, taking a nap every afternoon. I, I think that's definitely true. I can, I, I can certainly get behind that. Yes, I can. From Birmingham, Alabama. This is the Midnight Citizen Show. Yes, welcome in. I am your host, Mike Booty. It's another Saturday night here in the studio, and uh, it's gonna be a it's gonna be a good show. I want to get to this. Uh, I want to get I want to get to the, the the bottom of this. Is it really true that we learn everything that we need to learn in life in kindergarten? Uh, clearly, uh, clearly, uh, you know, we're not learning how to do taxes in kindergarten. Unless maybe they're teaching that to the kids now. I don't know, financial literacy or whatever. But uh, I, don't, I don't think he's being literal here. Like, not literally everything, like... Uh, how do we like arrange a funeral or something like that? That's not really something we learn in kindergarten. But, you know, th these ideas, these basic tenets of like sharing everything and playing fair and just, uh, you know, they're, they're trying to teach us to be a good person. Like, don't hit people. Um, you know, clearly, that's a rule that can be applied to the larger scope of uh, don't provoke war or something like that. Right. Yeah, if if if. Robert Fulgham is correct, then I'm pretty sure that uh, people like Vladimir Putin did not go to kindergarten. I don't know. But anyway, no, we're not getting political tonight. Yeah, no, uh, th this whole idea, though, about taking naps uh, is very much frowned upon in school, all the way from like the first grade to the 12th grade and then on into college and grad school and uh, postdoctoral PhD programs. 
Uh, they, they don't really like you to take naps in class. It's a sign of disrespect. It shows you that uh, shows teachers that you don't care about what they're what they're teaching. Um, it's it's not really fair to you because you're waking up and going to school and putting on clothes and all that stuff and and doing essentially at school what you could just stay home and do, right? But there in kindergarten, it's, it's, it's not only encouraged, but it's forced. When I was in kindergarten, it was definitely forced. We had to take a nap every day, okay? Our, our, our teacher, Miss Norby, demanded it. And I was in kindergarten in 1986, the same year that uh, this book, Everything I Need to Learn and Everything I Need to Know in Life, I learned in kindergarten. This book was published, and I was learning the lessons that he was espousing this minister named Robert Fulgham, okay, and uh, I I remember when nap time was. It was right after recess, and we would come down and come in from recess, and we would march down that hall like extras from another brick in the wall, and we would go in and we would grab our mats, our foam mats that uh, had that little mound at the top that was uh, presumably a pillow. Of course, in August, when we first started school, or like early September, these mats would be all shining and new. They would roll out really easily, and they were actually kind of comfortable. But of course, after a couple of months, like by October, after a couple of months of wear and tear, uh, the foam would just be peeling, and it would just give you like a really bad skin rash to lay on these things. But uh, nevertheless, there we were. And we were kids. We were used to sleeping. And so uh, my teacher, Miss Norby, she would turn the lights off and we would lie down and she would put on Sesame Street. And uh, we would take a cat nap there for 45 minutes or so. And uh, it, it's something that uh, I found when I was five or six years old in kindergarten uh, certainly relaxed me and allowed me to get up and feel a little freshened for the uh, for the afternoon and for all the daily tasks that the afternoon and the evening would give us. And uh, it's something that I still follow today. I still try to take a nap every day because I know if I don't, then uh, I'm just, I'm not going to be there, right, for the second half of the day. So I try to take a nap, okay, when I get home from school every day. And I learned in kindergarten the consequences of not doing this, of not, not just trying to give yourself a few minutes to, if not take a nap, then meditate. Just sit down and like not do anything and just let the world wash over you and just recharge your batteries. I learned the consequences of not doing this. Because one day in kindergarten, I... I Came back to school after I was sick. I had missed a couple of days, and my teacher told me that I had makeup work to do, so I could not take a nap that day. And I, you know, I don't know what this is, a makeup work in kindergarten. It's like I was falling behind on finger painting or something. But nevertheless, she told me that I had to uh, to make up some work. So everybody else went to went to bed. They 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 grabbed their mats, they laid down on the floor. They watched Bert and Ernie until they uh, drifted off to sleep. 
And uh, I had to sit at my desk and uh, do some kind of an arts and crafts makeup assignment. And Miss Norby uh, gave me all the supplies, and she gave me this huge container of unopened Elmer's glue. And then she went back to her desk and sat down. And I'm sleep-deprived there, so my motor skills are not exactly up to snuff, and I'm kind of fumbling around with this glue. And glue, if you're not an arts and crafts person, then glue is probably, like, the heyday of you using this stuff is probably kindergarten, okay? You, you probably don't use it every single day. Right? So I, I was using this glue, and it was unopened, and I was fumbling around trying to open it up, and I just could not do it, the... the, the, the uh, the top was uh, seemed to be stuck. And so I, I, I do the next best thing. I essentially try to squeeze it open and just push air to the top so that it'll like, pop the lid. And so I do this in one quick motion. I squeeze it and then... Like a bear after hibernation, it just explodes all over the place, okay? This, this, this glue. It gets all over the carpet, all over the ceiling. It goes all over the kids sleeping around me. It goes all over Miss Norby. It's just a huge mess. And I look back to her, and she's just got that. I don't even need to say anything. She's got a huge finger, right, pointing toward... A particular spot in the uh, in the classroom that I'm very familiar with. She points toward the corner. So I get up and I have my head down and I start to walk toward the corner. And then I just hear her say behind me, no, 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 no. And I look back and she's not pointing at the corner. She's pointing toward the door that goes out of the hallway toward the bathroom. She says, go get a wet paper towel. So she makes me clean up all of it. And she wakes up the kids who had glue all over them, and they all go to the, the bathroom to wash off. Some of their clothes are irreparably ruined, and they're all mad at me now, not just because I ruined their clothes, but because they had to wake up. I had to wake them up from their slumber. It was just a terrible day, and it was all just because, like, and I, I kept on telling them, you know, I'm sleep-deprived. I'm sleep-deprived. What do you want me to do? I'm sorry. I really, really am sorry. And yeah, that's that's definitely a lesson that I uh, take to this day. Once a day, every day, take a nap. Yeah, most people are definitely sleep-deprived. It's uh, certainly a symptom of our time because there's always things calling for our attention. Cell phones, television. All of these companies, entertainers vying for our attention. I'm one of them. Begging your attention right now to come into the night with me on the Midnight Citizen Show. 
And one consequence of obviously taking a nap uh, at night is because it does, uh, by the by the time you get to the evening, when you're actually supposed to be sleeping, your mind is kind of still awake. At least mine is. And I don't know the, the, those routines, that sleep schedule that I had when I was uh, when I was a kid carried over into uh, being an adult. And uh, that's why I'm here right now. So these, uh, this book, I, I, I just found out that this was a book, this, uh, everything I need to know I learned in kindergarten because, uh, I, I seem to remember that in the early nineties, there was just this whole slew of posters, right? Like you would go to the mall or you would go to Walmart to the big poster rack, how you would go to this, uh, this big display that had all of these uh, uh, encased posters that you could like flip through. They were like on a uh, on a turnstile or whatever, and uh, they all seem to be like everything I need. I, I I need to know. I learned this or that. I learned this from friends, or I learned this from Star Trek, or I learned this from uh, the Godfather or something like that. And uh, it was it was just this big uh, poster trend in the '90s. I don't know if it's still going on today or not. I haven't seen one of these posters in a while, but it's just one of these random things that I thought about this week. And I looked into it, and sure enough, it stems. Like, the the original is this uh, book that came out uh, when I was in kindergarten. And by this Unitar- Unitarian Universalist minister out of Waco, Texas... Now, now, normally, of course, growing up in the 90s, I know not to trust religious people out of Waco, Texas. <laughs> Isn't that where David Koresh and the Branch Davidians were, right? But, uh, but yeah, this, this guy, this Robert Fulgham, um, wrote this book, and it ended up becoming just this massive hit. And uh, really in the, in the vein of these kind of self-help books of the, uh, of the eighties and nineties, something like, um, kind of reminds me of like the five people you meet in heaven or something like that. Right. Um, yeah, this guy, this guy, Robert Fulgham, let me get him here on the, uh, on the screen. I am, uh, by the way, tonight on the show, uh, taping this episode, it will be on YouTube, uh, Sunday, February 27th. Yeah, right now, I am uh, everything that you hear. You can also see over at youtube.com slash Mike Booty. But uh, let me, uh, yeah, this guy, so like Robert Fulgham in 2007, is. there's the picture. He looks like Colonel Sanders. He's got this big gray white beard and he's wearing like a bow tie. And uh I don't think Colonel Sanders ever wore wore a bow tie. But yeah, it's it's certainly that uh that big white beard that makes him look like a, a chicken roaster. 
or fried chicken aficionado. But uh, he he wrote uh, the this story. He followed it up with a bunch of other stories, like uh, essays. Um, also, uncommon thoughts on common things. Okay, and he became this uh, huge best-selling author just uh, writing these. Essentially, like I I, I tried uh, like writing a list myself of uh, like everything I learned. I uh, everything I need to know I learned from the Midnight Citizen. I'll share that with you in a minute. But that took me like a day, and uh, I wonder if I can get on the uh, New York Times bestseller list for that. But uh, <laughs> but uh, one one thing that I found out about this guy is that uh, he actually played in this uh, band called the Rock Bottom Remainders, uh, which is a, a band full of other authors, just like he is, and uh, founded by Stephen King and Dave Barry in the uh, late 80s. And I saw these guys. I saw the Rock Bottom Remainders in New York in 2007. So I wonder if I actually saw this guy up on stage jamming out, along with Stephen King, to uh, Werewolves of London or something like that. But yeah, I went on a June night in 2007. I was at the New York Book Fair, and uh, they they were doing this uh, sur- surprise concert, the Rock Bottom Remainders. And so Stephen King was up there along with Dave Barry and Mitch Album, who wrote the Five People You Meet in Heaven. And uh, they had like special guest Leslie Gore, <laughs> who sang uh, "It's My Party and I'll Cry If I Want To." And uh, it sounds incredibly nerdy, but it was also a very exciting night. I remember my friend Josh, I was there with him, uh, snuck up on stage and pretended to be a roadie and ended up getting uh, Dave Barry's autograph, but Stephen King said, I don't do autographs, kid. Right. But I wonder if Robert Fulgham was there that night. Everything I need to know I learned in kindergarten. It's it's definitely like a list of very saccharine rules, and obviously you're not supposed to take them literally, okay? As I said, um, yeah, so, some of them are like like here's the complete here's the complete list, okay? So share everything, play fair, don't hit people, put things back where you found them, clean up your own mess, don't take things that aren't yours, say you're sorry when you hurt somebody, wash your hands before you eat, flush. Warm cookies and cold milk are good for you. Live a balanced life. Uh, Take a nap every afternoon. When you go out into the world, watch out for traffic. Hold hands and stick together. Wonder. Remember the little seed in the styrofoam cup? The roots go down and the plant goes up, and nobody really knows how or why, but we are all like that. Goldfish and hamsters and white mice and even the little seed in the styrofoam cup, they all die. So do we. So, uh, I mean, obviously the, the, the novelty of it, the point of it is that, uh, things are very complicated in life, but they essentially boil down to a few simple rules. And I could see why this would have critics and why it did inspire like a whole list of parodies in, in the nineties, like parody posters, um, because uh, they, they, it does seem kind of condescending for, for somebody to, uh, to say that. That, uh, oh, the world is so complicated. Yeah, right. Well, just remember, share. Okay? Um, it's very easy, like in the, in the cynical 90s, to make fun of something like that. But, uh, but I see where he's coming from. 
So like, uh, here's some other, uh, some other things like everything I know in life. I learned from the Godfather. Never discuss the family business. Avoid sleeping with the fishes. Make sure it's your signature on the contract, not your brains. <laughs> uh, oranges should make you nervous. That like the scene in the Godfather where like he eats an Oh, no, wait, no. Like, that's in The Godfather Part 2 where Michael is eating an orange and plotting to murder Hyman Roth. Don't take sides against the family. Right, this is one of those parody posters okay, that I'm talking about. All right. Yeah. What's another one? Get a... So we got uh, everything I learned in life. I learned from Star Trek. Yeah, here's an another one. See, seek out new life and new civilizations. Humans are highly illogical. There's no such thing as Vulcan death grip. Live long and prosper. Having is uh, having is not so pleasing a thing as wanting. So all of these, I, I've never been a big fan of Star Trek, but uh, but I guess like those are some lessons that you can learn from the show. Okay. And yeah, I mean that, that, that's kind of the thing is that uh, we we all have these things in life that we're 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 certainly obsessed with, and we can uh, there's certain areas of like pop culture that transcend entertainment and actually do give us some level of credo uh, and philosophy to live by, and I, I guess human beings are natural that way. Okay, we uh, we look to entertainment uh, to. Uh, reflect on the lives that uh, allow us to reflect on the lives that we lead and, and live vicariously through other people and see how they solve problems. Okay. And so it's only natural that uh, we would forget the things that we actually learn in life through actual life experience and, and, and take them from some kind of filtered reality like the Godfather or Star Trek or something like that. So today I, I, I sat down and I just, I just, you know, wanted to see if I could actually create my own parody poster. And you're, you're free to take some of these uh, with you and apply them to your own life if you wish. <laughs> uh, I'll be honest with you. Some of these, like, it is, you know, these posters always have a big logo at the top. Above it, it says, all I need to know about life, I learned from whatever. And then under that is like a big block of text 
separated by little bullet points. And uh, I had a hard time filling up the entire poster with rules. So some of these are, I'll be honest, are kind of bullshit. But uh, some of them I believe. I'll, I'll leave it to you to decide what to believe and what to leave. <laughs> All right. All I need to know about life, I learned from the Midnight Citizen. Every little thing is a story. Trash is treasure. If the po if the food pyramid was legit, coffee would be at the top. It's all about coordinated chaos. Take a nap every day. I may need to pay royalties on that one. When I need a break, I will take a trip to the Video Street Video Store. I shall not cause harm to any vehicle, nor to the personal contents thereof, nor through inaction let that vehicle or the personal contents thereof come to harm. Okay, I ripped off Repo Man there because I needed to fill some space. But I still believe it. It's okay to split infinitives. That 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 is basically my my way of saying that uh, grammar is always evolving and it's okay to uh to break some grammar rules every once in a while because uh, if you break a rule enough times it becomes the law anyway i will never stop funding my roth ira thought i put some tax advice on there for you only only boring people are bored and for everything i will keep my eyes open So there you have it. Words to live by from the Midnight Citizen. Live by those words. As I take a break here, play some music, and I'll be back after that. This is the Midnight Citizen Show. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. Painted carousel 
some of these uh, other posters that you can uh, get for your room. Kind of as a humorous gag. Everything I need to know, I learned from Doctor Who. Everything I need to know, I learned from gaming. Everything I need to know, I learned from vampires, from uh, cartoons. Remember on the uh, Larry Sanders show? I remember in, in the in the writers' room they always had that poster. Um, everything I need to know I learned from living in L.A. because the show was set in L.A. I guess so. Yeah, that was uh, always a goof. But I hope you enjoyed uh, that little foray that that music uh, that music break there. It's some good music. You just heard Get Me a Job by a band called the Riptones. Big surprise. They said it every five seconds. And then uh, a, a band named Man, Woman, Child with the song Bellwether. Good music there. All available on the freemusicarchive.org. Wonderful public service of uh, WFMU out of New Jersey. You can use that music for free as long as you attribute it, which I just did. Hope you enjoyed it. And this is the Midnight Citizen Show. I'm your host, Mike Booty. You can find me wherever you 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 download great podcasts for free. Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts. You can find me at MikeBooty.com slash the Midnight Citizen. On Twitter. I'm never there, but you can find me there. At Citizen Midnight. Of course, I'm on the Overnightscape Underground Network, a network of other amazing podcasters who do a show just like mine, where they just speak about what's on their mind, which is incredibly niche, even though it's very broad. I'll, I'll kind of talk about that in a few minutes. I, I've been thinking about that a lot this week. There's this weird business of podcasting. And... uh and, of course, you could watch me uh, do this show over at YouTube.com slash Mike Booty. Uh, I do my best to record every single show as I do it. Okay, Occasionally, I'll do like a live show. But uh, lately, during the school year, as I've been working, um, I don't really want to stay up until 3 o'clock in the morning doing a show on a Saturday night, if you know what I mean. I hope you can understand. Okay, So you can find me over there. I do tape this show on Saturday night and then release it just in time for midnight going into Sunday morning. So there I am. There you have it. Thank you so much. Let's get to some more stuff, all right? I feel like you could always tell when you meet them whether or not somebody subscribes to this idea that everything that you need to know you learn in kindergarten 
These are all the always the people who uh, smile and shake your hand, and they can turn any negative comment into a positive comment. And that's a very good quality. I, I certainly feel like I have some of these qualities. I, I do believe that you 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 send out into the universe exactly what you get back. Oh, a good example is like every every morning on my way to work, I, I go to the grocery store. And I have a nickname there by by one of the cashiers. She calls me Smiley Face. She always calls me Smiley Face, right? And she gives me candy every morning. She has candy in a jar that she hands out. And she gave me like some Mardi Gras beads this week. Because because I smile at her every morning and it, and it makes her smile back, okay? And it's just like this... Uh, echo chamber of positivity and, and it's a good thing to have first thing in the morning right but I will at the same time admit that I do not have this ability that some people miraculously do I don't know how to take any negative situation and find some way to spin it in a way that's positive A lot of people have this, and, and, and almost all those people, I'm going to say like 90 to 95% of them, that's a fault. Because what essentially they're doing is this, they're taking the negative situation and they're, they're turning it um, into an even worse situation by pretending that it's positive. Okay, Like you saw this a lot with the, uh, with the fire Festival. <laughs> if you watch that documentary on Netflix about the fire Festival in the Bahamas, this guy named Billy McFarland wanted to put on this giant festival, uh, music music festival with like Blink One Eighty Two. He he rented out what he called what he told everybody was this private island, but it wasn't. It was just like part of Sandals, Jamaica. And uh, he uh, rented out these hurricane tents, these emergency tents that uh, from FEMA that. Uh, and then sold them for thousands of dollars to people, saying that they were luxury villas and bungalows. And all of his team, you know, he spent millions of dollars on this, and everybody who was working with him said, this is a bad idea, this is terrible. You're going to go to jail. And he would just, like, take whatever was said to him, and he, he said, you know, we're not a problems-focused company, we're a solutions-focused company. And, and he used that positivity and just dug himself into the ground. I believe he's still in prison right now. So um, there, there are just certain people who, uh, 95% of people who can very often uh, hear negative comments and, and put a positive spin on them, uh, often just make bad situations worse. Few people, though, the, the 5% left, though, can actually look at a negative situation, see the practical side of it, and actually turn it into a positive thing, okay? And I think you saw this with, like, once-in-a-generation geniuses like Walt Disney, people like that. I mean, I'll, I'll even give that to Steve Jobs. These people who see, like, really bad decisions, and they can immediately turn them around. 
And I was thinking this week about um, about where I was in 2007, right, when I went to go see this guy, this author, Robert Fulgham, possibly, play in this band, The Rock Bottom Remainders. I was in New York in 2007 for the book fair, and I had actually gone to New York several times that year because I was working for a marketing company, a marketing company where we would drive up to all these different trade shows and uh, set up this giant kiosk and uh, and basically just like house people's literature. Like companies would have literature for their booths at these trade shows, and we would we would stock them and and uh, and all that. And I've talked about this on the show in the past. That's, I don't want to get into it right now, but uh, but I got to travel a lot that year. And that entire year, I just remember thinking, like, you know, I've, I've arrived. No more minimum wage jobs for me. No more, like, serving people anything, uh, right? I'm, I have a job now, like a career, okay, that uh, is prestigious, right? And I just was like, I'm never, ever going back to uh, serving coffee again for minimum wage. And uh, pretty soon, the traveling took a toll on me. And the next year, in 2008, 2009, and on into a little bit of 2010, I ended up serving coffee to people, okay? Not for minimum wage. I had served coffee at uh, certain cafes before for minimum wage. So, yeah, I stepped it up a little bit, and I, get, and, I, and I got a job working for Starbucks. Which, let it be known here, I think Starbucks is a great company. I've talked about them on the past I may have seemed a little negative sometimes about Starbucks in the past. And no, it's not just because I know that my former manager at Starbucks, Paul, listens to this podcast and is probably my biggest fan out there. Hey, Paul. <laughs> and his wife, Jody. Okay. But uh, I, I've made my peace with Starbucks over the years. I, I, I always had like a negative, some negative feelings working with it. And I think I, I know why that is. Um, because I happen to work at Starbucks during three of possibly the most volatile years in the history of that company. Okay. And uh, they were the years when Howard Schultz, the CEO of Starbucks, uh, came back to the company. He had, uh, he had stepped down from being CEO and I don't know, sometime like in the early two thousands. And uh, given the company, given this company Starbucks that he built up over the last three decades, uh, to outsiders. And in the course of uh, the seven or eight years or so that he was gone, these uh, controllers just seemed to run the company into the ground. They, they saw a lot of expansion of the company, which was good, like they brought it to the Birmingham market. Starbucks was not in Birmingham until about 2002-2003. And uh, I should know because I worked at the very first Starbucks store in the very first year of its operation in uh, 2003. Right. I was a barista there for a couple of years. And it was very exciting. Uh, Starbucks was opening in Birmingham. It's the world's biggest coffee chain. Or maybe not the biggest. I think that goes to Dunkin' Donuts. But uh, it was uh, certainly a, a big step up from Birmingham to have a trendy coffee shop like uh, Starbucks come in. Okay. 
and Starbucks had expanded a lot, but they had also made a, a, a lot of blunders. They overexpanded. They opened up way too many stores. And that's where Starbucks was in 2008 when I started working for them again. After I left my job at, a, at, the, uh, at the marketing company, because I was just burned out from traveling so much. And it, it quickly became apparent because uh, that, that Howard Schultz was in charge again. Because when I went to training, we, we, uh, our, our training manager popped in a video, and there was Schultz, right, talking about getting back to basics. Okay. And you could just tell he was one of these guys that had probably read this book, Everything I Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. Because everything that he was talking about, being kind, sharing, Okay. They, they were all part of his philosophy, right? It's like Howard Schultz was really the first of those socially responsible CEOs that just kills you with kindness. Okay. Not one of these people who are obsessed with his bottom line. And he proved this in 2008. Because what had happened was, is that he realized very quickly after coming back as CEO of Starbucks that the company had just been run into the ground and was hemorrhaging money, just gushing it out of every orifice possible. And so he made the tough decision to close down more than 600 stores nationwide. And many of those stores, I think about six of them, were actually in Birmingham. I think we were one of the hardest-hit markets for Starbucks, and I remember uh, a friend of mine who had actually trained me and had become manager of her own store was completely had to leave the company. Like, she couldn't find a job at another Starbucks. Her store closed, and then she was out of the job. I think she ended up having to move to Atlanta. It was a very sad moment, but it turns out that Howard Schultz was one of these guys who saw a negative situation and he realized that it was negative and he realized that in order to have a positive outcome you were going to have to uh you know patch things up but at the same time you had to sort of recognize that you had lost a lot of blood okay i think i'm mixing my metaphors here i don't know but so what he did was is that he realized that the baristas were undertrained. We didn't know what we were doing. We were pulling espresso shots completely differently at every store. So customers weren't getting any consistency. So what Howard Schultz did was a pretty genius marketing move. He closed down every single store in the entire United States for like three hours. One day. I believe this was in 2009. And we underwent training. We just got back to basics. And I was there that day. And, and, and I was remembering this recently because I was listening to uh, this podcast called Business Wars. It's all about the war between Starbucks and Dunkin' Donuts. Now, when I was working at Starbucks in, in, in the late 2000, 2000s, uh, 2010 or whatever, um, I didn't know that Starbucks was at war with Dunkin' Donuts because here in Birmingham, Dunkin' Donuts hadn't even arrived here yet. Our, our biggest competitor was McDonald's, and McDonald's was competing with us hard because 
they had introduced McCafe, which is actually pretty damn good coffee, if I do say so myself. And it's cheaper, too. So they were talking on this podcast about how Howard Schultz had made this bold decision to shut down every single store, and everybody was criticizing him for it. They were calling him the biggest moron in the history of morons, whoever ran a business or anything else. And believe me, we were calling him a moron as well. But it turned out to be a genius move because customers recognized that sometimes you got to sacrifice a few million dollars for a quality product. When we opened up the next day, the customers, man, they were mad. Now, we, we had closed late in the day to minimize, like when, when sales were lowest, to minimize customer disappointment, but it didn't matter. The, the, the story was all over the news, and we were the hot topic, and everybody was coming by the drive through talking about how mad they were and how stupid Howard Schultz was and how we're going to close down. Like the, they, they were really actually really threatening <laughs> uh, that they were never going to come to Starbucks ever again. But, you know, all that quickly died down. And was I a better barista after that day? I don't know, maybe. I, I certainly think that um, different standards were put in place that, that made us better uh, in terms of, like, if we didn't follow, follow the policy. Like, I remember uh, learning how to calibrate the espresso shots, and we, we certainly had to do that. We were essentially, like, uh, governed to do that every hour to make sure that the espresso shots were pouring correctly. So that was one thing. Like, you can train baristas, but if you don't, like, give them actual rule books to follow anyway. So it, it became apparent, right, that Howard Schultz was one of these guys who, uh, who understood that uh, you can't just follow, like, a few simple rules. You actually have to look into those rules and what they actually mean. Okay. So that's what I mean, I guess. Um, he still did not allow us to, uh, take naps every afternoon. So that's, that's against him. I don't know. Yeah, so this this show, The Midnight Citizen, um, I, I actually started doing the show um, in January of 2010 when I was working at Starbucks. Can you hear any of those shows? No, you cannot. They're lost forever. <laughs> I put them on a hard drive back when I, that was pretty much the only way to store, to store this stuff, okay? It was before I had, like, Google Drive and knew about archive.org and all the stuff where you could actually store it on the cloud. Uh, I, I'm, so you can't listen to those shows, but take me for granted. Uh, take, take my word for it. They exist. Uh, they existed, and now they don't. But So, yeah, I, I, 
started the show in 2010 when I was working at Starbucks, and I knew from the very beginning that I was never, ever going to get anybody to casually listen to the show, okay? I knew from the very beginning that if anybody was actually going to listen to my podcast, they were going to be a diehard listener. That's just this kind of show. It's a show where if you don't get the joke, you're you're not you're not going to you're not going to stay for longer than about 3 minutes to discover what that joke is. But if you can get past like 3 minutes or something like that, you can, you you get it, okay? Not to sound too grandiose, but but my show The Midnight Citizen is uh it's of course it's like a, it's a a monologue format which podcast that that's not too popular for podcasts. Okay, M- most podcasts are like people interviewing guests, or it's like two friends or two or more friends talking about like horror movies or or, or their favorite record albums or something incredibly niche like uh, you know cooking pasta or something like that. Um, model trains. And this is what all the advice gives you. If you're going to start a podcast, go to YouTube and uh, just say, you know, Google how to start a podcast there on YouTube. And you'll come up with all these videos of these people in like incredibly nicely lit studios with great microphones telling you that uh, the number one rule of creating a podcast is that you have to find your niche. You have to like look it's something that nobody else in the world is talking about and do a podcast about that thing. And then you will find a very large audience that previously was like a silent majority. And I, I agree with this advice if you're going to make a podcast that you want everybody to listen to. Okay. But, um, I, I can't do that. I, I, I can't uh, create a podcast that uh, that is incredibly niche. But the weird thing is, as I was thinking about it this week, that's exactly what I did. Very few people out there right now are doing podcasts where they just talk about everything. So it's ironic because I'm a very I have a very broad show in that I, I cover a, a, a wide range of topics. But uh, not many shows out there do that, so that in turn makes me very niche. <laughs> the, the, the show, The Midnight Citizen, I wanted to do it after I was just inspired by listening to hundreds of hours of the radio legend Gene Shepard's old shows, where he would just come on at night and talk into a microphone about whatever was on his mind. I love that so much, and... Uh, of course, naturally, that's something that radio phased out over many years, unless you were like a conservative talk radio show host like Rush Limbaugh or somebody like that, and you came on and talked about politics. It's not something that exists on radio anymore at all and hasn't for some time, and certainly it's not something that podcasters want to do. Just come on and talk about whatever's on their mind because they don't think there's an audience out there who cares about what's on their mind unless what's on their mind is something that has to do with like a hobby or whatever. 
So I, I, I know that I put a lot of work into, the, in, into doing this show. And I really try very hard to make it look easy. But it's not. It's a lot of work. And that's one of the reasons why I, I don't do this show. I, I, I haven't done this show very often in the last four years because I, I do have a day job and it, it requires a lot of my, my time and energy. I'm a teacher. And so recently I, I decided to just like give it a shot, like teach, you know, teach and podcast at the same time. And this is my fourth week of trying this out. And I found that I can actually find uh, a balance between my job and this show. It's a very delicate balance, though. Okay, It's very, very difficult to, uh, to find it. And everything, every week, kind of has to be zen and fall into a, the exact right place in order for this to happen the way that I want it to happen. So, I guess what I'm talking about is is that it's very hard work, um, but I feel that it's worth it. I, I feel that it's worth it. And one thing that I, I just can't get over is as difficult as this show is to do, I seem to be content every week with the fact that very few people are going to listen to it. <laughs> and so I guess at the end of the day, I'm just doing it for myself. Right? And I know that some people do listen to it. But what I have been really trying to do the last few weeks that I've been coming back and doing Midnight Citizen shows is I've been trying to find ways to promote the show in a way that will actually find an audience because I, I know that they're out there and this, I had this revelation this week that there is an audience out there for stuff like my show that you can just put on in the background. Like that's, that's kind of what I'm hoping that you're doing right now. I'm hoping right now that I'm on mute. <laughs> if you're watching me on YouTube, you've got me on mute or you've got me turned down very low and you're watching me just talk occasionally while you're baking cookies or something like that you're doing something i don't know or if you're listening to me uh on spotify or apple podcast or whatever you know maybe you've got me turned down low while you're like going to sleep or something you're you're doing homework or whatever i don't know it's just some you know mundane thing i'm totally okay with that i don't need to be heard right now i don't need you know you you what i'm doing what I'm talking about right now can just go completely over your head. It can just be background noise. I had this revelation that there is a market for this this week because I came in and my, my wife wakes up every single morning. She pours herself a cup of coffee and she sits down and she watches these ASMR videos, you know, like people just ironing clothes or <laughs> feeding birds or something like that. Just videos that really have no express purpose, but to just be on. And I realized that, like, that, there I am right there. That's exactly what I do. That's my niche. So I know that there's an audience out there for that. I've just got to find them. And 
they've got to know about it. But I don't think that there are that many podcasts out there right now that are specifically geared toward the ASMR fans, right? But I don't know. I've been I've been looking at just other ways to promote lately. I've been hitting up Reddit quite a bit, trying to like build a community on Reddit, talking to people about podcasts. Everybody there just has this idea that uh, every podcast has to have a sponsor, every podcast has to have a guest, somebody like that. It's become just this, I feel like this incredibly polluted group of uh, content producers who just think that something always has to be something. And the reason that I got into podcasting in the first place is like I just thought it was a, a, a great place to experiment, to try new things every single week, to never actually have to make something about anything. Okay. But uh, still, I'm, I'm just kind of seeing like maybe I can actually take this formula of promoting podcasts and making them popular and doing other things. There's this idea of like SEO, search engine optimization. All these all these YouTube channels and all these podcasters who talk about podcasting and try to sell their services to podcasters talk about search engine optimization. Make sure that Google knows where you are. So I, I looked on I looked on uh, the internet this week and I just kind of tried to see like uh, you know what are some of those like popular terms, okay? To, uh, to, to search on Google. And maybe I can like name my show, The Midnight Citizen, something that actually comes up uh, in Google because it the title of the podcast or the episode itself actually has you know words in common with popularly searched words on Google. So I'm thinking like just calling my podcast Facebook. Or maybe calling it YouTube. Or maybe like the Facebook of YouTube or something like that. Or calling it like Midnight XXX. <laughs> or the Porno Citizen. Or then there's like something like, I don't know, Porno Porno. I've got Porno. You know, something catchy that gets eyes on my show. And then, of course, ears. That'd be nice. And with that, yes, let's take a break. Because that is one of the rules of the uh, Midnight Citizen show is... When I need to take a break, I will go down to the Video Street Video Store. Yes, let's go down there and check out some of their new stock. And I will be back after that. I think it's the greatest service available. It's games if you want to have fun. It's information if you want to learn something. It's a, a private window to the world.
welcome. Yes, welcome to America Online and a new era in communications. Welcome to a nationwide online network with the power, range, and ease of access to put a world of information at your fingertips. People all over America are connecting their personal computers to their telephones so they can access outside sources of information and interact with other people. I use America Online roughly 10 times a day. Uh, mostly I use it for point-to-point -point email communication because I, I hate playing telephone tag. I find it important to communicate with a client or a customer in real time, and I don't want to have to wait for uh, a return phone call via a machine or something else. My business associate doesn't live real close to me, so we send messages and uh, work that we're doing back and forth using America Online. Other subscribers like to access late-breaking news reports. I may be working on a story for television that requires a little research that our research department can't give me, so I use the online service for that. I uh, started to use it, uh, frankly, during the uh, Yeltsin, uh, during the coup in August. I found that the, uh, the updates were fabulous. Well, I use it for three things. I follow my stock portfolio uh, through the stock section. I write letters to my mother, and I uh, also download Macintosh software. Personal computer owners can obtain a wide variety of software and get help when they have questions. I support about 50 Macintoshes within my company, and I get a lot of shareware and public domain utilities off of America Online. Providing communication between users and the publishers of the software is a, is a major um, component of America Online. America Online is working with groups such as SeniorNet and the National Education Association to build electronic communities. Microsoft has joined with America Online to create the Microsoft Small Business Center. And the idea behind this is to provide tools, training, consulting, and support to entrepreneurs, people running home, bus home businesses, generating income out of the home. There are hundreds of additional uses of America Online. Only your imagination is the limit. Uh, I like to get into the encyclopedia and look up research information. Uh, we've used it for about a year and a half for uh, prototypes of connecting school districts to uh, databases. You can shop, you can get travel information. Weather, sports, whatever you want. I think it's great. You know why I think it's great? Tell me. Because it looks like the Mac, that's why. Really? Yeah, yeah. It's very user-friendly, you know. It's, it's, uh, it's no problem moving from place to place. It's easy to understand without, without knowing anything about computers, really. It's got to be the easiest thing to use that I've ever seen. I hate the other ones. I have all my customers on America Online. I love it. America Online is creating partnerships with leading media companies to combine the content and credibility of print with the interactivity of America Online. We're looking forward to participating through America Online on a nationwide basis, also to developing localized editions of the America Online service in markets where we have an established presence. In the next decade, online services will revolutionize the way we communicate, and America Online is ready to lead the way.
10 years from now, people will access America online through a wide variety of services. Some will use a classical personal computer on a desk. Some will use what looks like a telephone with a little display on it to access services. Some may access these services through television. We have a product we believe that people really enjoy, and once they start using it, uh, uh, in some cases, it almost becomes addictive. We're going to see uh, this become a real broad-based product for users, just as the telephone was once a very small product, and now it's used by everybody. Online is, of course, how everybody's going to be getting their information. It's very obvious that online services will change the world. America Online, the online service for the 1990s. Once every generation, a man arrives on the scene that speaks the hopes and the aspirations of his entire time. Here is such a man, the star of our show, Gene Shepard. on this set, I'll tell you, life, to me, is one series of sets after the other. All the lights are right, and the, the smell of the grease paint, the roar of the crowd. There's only one thing I miss, though, on this show. I'll tell you that, Ray. I would like to have somebody to kiss out here. <laughs> well, you, you know all those TV shows where the guys come out, they kiss everybody, and they walk back and forth. Faye Dunaway kisses Ed McMahon. Ed McMahon kisses Johnny Carson. He sure does. <laughs> Several places. <laughs> well, that's his whole, that's his, that's his uh, profession. I mean, what the hell, you know? <laughs> and I, I miss that, you know? I come out here and there's just a set here, and, and of course our alert, bright, dynamic crew, all sitting there, eating their big boys, and looking mad, waiting for their coffee break. I need somebody to kiss. I mean, really kiss. Zsa, Zsa Gabor. I suspect uh, kissing Zsa, Zsa Gabor is like uh, kissing a uh, plastic poodle. You know? <laughs> the hair hanging down. Farrah Fawcett Major. It's been an exciting week, hasn't it, gang? Let's get on with the show here. We'll just have to work with what we got. Nobody to kiss here. It's been exciting. I, I suppose all of you know that they've just recently announced a survey, which I think is very important. I don't want to hurt the feelings of any of you out there, because, you know, this is, after all, public television, and pe public TV viewers are very serious people. They eat granola, wild rice. There's probably 500 yogurt addicts watching tonight, just sitting there eating that yogurt away. They're figuring they're going to live to be 148 years old. Wouldn't you, 
How about that commercial, you know, where all these people are 190 years old and they're walking around eating yogurt? I say this. If you have to eat yogurt to live to be 137, it ain't worth it. <laughs> I mean, I have a few other things I like other than yogurt. You know, a little Jack Daniels there, sprinkle on the yogurt there. You know, what the hell, a few Twinkies to wash it down with. Life, you got to live life. And I suppose uh, I might as well tell you right offhand that a, a professor at the University of New York, NYU, in fact, very serious professor, just completed a five-year survey, and he found out, wait till you hear this, gang, that winos do not go bald. Isn't that a kick? <laughs> yeah, he went down on the Bowery, you know, and these guys are laying there. They got a bottle of Thunderbird next to him, you know, one shoe off, the whole bit. And he went around there, and he looked at all these guys, and he investigated them. He went to Skid Row in Chicago. Skid Row in Chicago, by the way, is Madison Avenue, way on the outside, west side, down there, all squatting down there on the curbs there with their bottles of Thunderbird and Valley High next to them. And he went around, he investigated, and he found out, for some curious reason, 87% of the winos, the real serious winos, have a full, beautiful head of hair. Obvious lesson in that for you, gang. All you guys that are out running, <laughs> eating your yogurt. <laughs> now, I don't want to bring you down too much because there has been some good news this week. Uh, one of the best news items I've seen during the week, and I suppose many of you saw it, was that they announced that they're building in the heart of Moscow, right next to the big Kremlin there, they're building a pizza hut. A pizza hut in the Kremlin. And I, I'd like to see the first Ivan, you know, comes in there. After all, he's living in the world of borscht. And uh, <laughs> he comes in there, see, they got this big side. You know, you've been in the Pizza Hut, you know, the big picture of pizza and all the different kinds you can get. And he says, what is uh, full tilt boogie pizza with anchovies? <laughs> and uh, I can only say that the Kremlin has made a serious mistake because if the Pizza Hut is there now, how long can it be before Colonel Sanders shows up? And you see this guy driving his Skoda <laughs> over the steps, <laughs> and it's wind blowing, and very far off in the distance as he's approaching Kiev in the frozen Russian winter, you see that great big Colonel Sanders chicken pot revolving. You know, the can there, Colonel looking out, goatee. I'll tell you, the Russians better be careful because after that comes democracy. Democracy, <laughs> you realize that once a guy has tasted a big boy, he can't go back. Once a Big Mac has mixed with the borscht, Brezhnev is in trouble. And so everywhere we look, the little American institutions are beginning to sneak in and that the wino's got a full set of hair. God, you don't know where it's ever gonna end. Uh, Ed McMahon is kissing Johnny Carson. And we would like to take a, a point right now in time to quote the great John Dean. Oh, by the way, a friend of mine is, for, is forming a new outfit called the Watergate Book of the Month Club. Every month you get the newest book on Watergate. It refutes the one you got just the last month. Have you noticed every book shows that no matter who it is who's writing about Watergate, he had nothing to do with it. It's fantastic. I wonder how that all happened. By osmosis.
fascinating. I knew that uh, this week I wanted to play something from Gene Shepard. Because, of course, as I was just mentioning in the previous segment, Gene Shepard is a major inspiration. Humorist. Uh, author of the Christmas Story, the classic film. And uh, that indeed was a clip from his very short-lived New Jersey public access television show, Shepherd's Pie, uh, which ran for one season between, uh, I believe it was 1977 and 1978. And uh, he was talking about the uh, Americanization of these worlds, like uh, Russia. And he indeed mentioned Kiev just now. You know, of course, the big news this week is that Russia, after many weeks of building up its troops, uh, did invade Ukraine. Because according to Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville, who is also the former head coach of Auburn football, uh, Russia is a communist country that invaded Ukraine to get wheat to feed its starving citizens. <laughs> I tell you what, like one day I, I want Russia to just invade Alabama. I don't know. I just, yeah, that, that would just be um, a more lucrative enterprise, I think, because uh, we, we would not be like uh, the Ukrainian people. We would not be like, you know, protesters or anything like that. We would, uh, we would just, you know, sit here and just let them take it. Because even though uh, Alabama, you know, just recently voted that you can uh, have a firearm without a permit, uh, the logic being that criminals don't follow the law, they don't care about permits, so why should we? <laughs> we nevertheless are, like, very sympathetic uh, down here to the Russians. Right? <laughs> we just, <laughs> we believe that they're a starving communist country, which they're neither of those. This is a senator who said this. Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville. And I don't want to talk too much about this, but that is interesting this week. What happened is that um, we have this um, image of the world in the 21st century that it has become very Americanized, right? That you, you could go onto the streets of uh, Moscow or Kiev and, you know, get Kentucky Fried Chicken from the Colonel. You can get your Burger King and your Starbucks. And uh, it'd just be like living in America. Everything you want at your fingertips. And then weeks like this come along and uh, remind us that um, we're still living in a very volatile uh, social ecosystem full of uh, dictators and people who are nostalgic for the Cold War. You know, I, I really do believe that uh, nostalgia is uh, one of the most dangerous things that human beings can possess. I mean, it's, 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 it keeps us living in the past. 
And it's fine to think about the past. I love nostalgia personally. I, I, I think that I am nostalgic to a fault to some degree. Right? It, it's very clear because I, I've spent the last hour and a half talking about kindergarten. <laughs> you know, I'm not very nostalgic for kindergarten. I'm just using that story to tell a point. But uh, very nostalgic, like for the early days of AOL, for instance. Just playing AOL, thinking about how just how, how interesting of a world it is. Uh, where you could uh, you, you could open up your mailbox and just get a disc that said AOL and just suddenly feel like you were just being catapulted into the 21st century. That, that's the way we felt about AOL discs back in the 90s. You would get them in the mail. Just uh, you know, went to a I went to get a new phone yesterday, and uh, I was in the phone store for two hours getting this thing. Half the time it takes the average person to buy a car. I bought a phone. It took me two hours to get this thing. I was feeling nostalgic for just the old days of, like, when you would get a phone, it was just the process of, like, cracking it open, putting the SIM card in there, and then you were good to go. Okay. But, but the real problem is, is that when you have these people in power who are nostalgist, these people like Vladimir Putin, who just really longs for the day when he was a KGB agent and could just, like, murder people with impunity. Or, you know, you even saw this, like, with, uh, with Donald Trump. You know, Donald Trump wanting to make America great again. Right? I, you know, it's just... Uh, you know, the thing about nostalgia is, of course, the and I, I don't think I'm the first person to say this, the good old days were never as good as you think they were. You know, case in point, Donald Trump thought that the good old days was, you know, the 1980s when he was like the richest person in the United States. <laughs> and Ronald Reagan was president. But the weird thing is, is that Ronald Reagan, when he was president, was talking about keeping America great again. And that was in the 1950s when segregation was legal. Okay. They weren't good. Maybe for a few people, I guess. Yeah. So we, we look at this week and we're just reminded of the fact that, uh, you know, we should never get too comfortable, right? We should engage in another Midnight Citizen rule, right, of keeping our eyes open. That is the uh, the slogan of the show, and I think rightfully so. So yeah, ever since kindergarten, you know, I, I've I've uh, I've learned a few things. I've become the midnight citizen. I don't believe in much, but I believe in uh, a few certain things, like keeping your eyes open. Don't become too comfortable, right? And yeah, I, I think uh, that uh, Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz would agree with me. And I hope to be like uh, the the guy, but you know, he's not like a perfect guy, right? He ran for president. He's one of these few people who think that they're you know just just great enough to run for president. And I know that he's had some trouble in his long storied career as CEO of Starbucks, you know, exploiting impoverished countries. 
for the benefit of a $4 latte. But, uh, you know, overall, I, I want to be like one of these people, these five percenters who can, uh, you know, remember the valuable lessons that they were taught in kindergarten, but also be, you know, recognize that uh, you're, you're, you're never too old to learn. New lessons. Howard Schultz of Starbucks really does show this because one of his, like, signature moves is every time something happens with Starbucks, he does what he did in 2008. He closes every single store down and retrains his employees. He, he closed them down another time that I was there in uh, 2010 when we rolled out our new instant coffee line via, I remember he closed them down and he closed them down a few years ago, right? For unconscious racist bias training. When, uh, remember that when like this uh, manager refused this, uh, African-American man, uh, the key to the bathroom at a Philadelphia area, Starbucks, that was a big deal. And I think that's like the last time that Howard Schultz is going to do it for a while. Actually, I don't even think he's CEO anymore. I may be wrong, but I don't think he is. Is because like that 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 play kind of got kind of old. Like okay, we know what you're doing now. Okay, you're just closing things down for PR purposes, right? But uh, you know, nevertheless, I think every once in a while it is kind of good to like take stock, to stop everything for just a little bit and uh, close things down, and like retrain yourself, you know. And with that being said, I will be taking next week off to close down the Midnight Citizen and hold a retraining session. Not unconscious bias or anything, but just because I know that I have something Saturday night next week and I will not be available to record. So I will be taking the week off. But not to worry, because you can listen to past episodes of The Midnight Citizen Show over at MikeBooty.com slash The Midnight Citizen. Just click on the scroll down menu and go to back issues. You could find them all there going back to 2011. You can also find uh, this episode as well as uh, many previous shows. The videos at youtube.com slash Mike Booty, the live streams, you can find them there. You can also find me over at the Overnightscape Underground on SUG, O-N-S-U-G.com. And comment and like and subscribe and all that. I, I don't even know if that works when you tell people to subscribe and like and all that, but it definitely helps me out with the YouTube algorithm. Um, you know, let, let's, let's prove to the world that there is a market for this. I know that there is, okay? Share me with your friends. I don't know. I do. I do a lot of work on this show. It's it's ultimately very fun, and and uh, you know just the process. It's like uh, it's like writing like writing a short story. You know that most people aren't gonna read that short story because you know most people don't read anymore. But just the writing, the getting it out of your brain, is like the fun part. Right now, I'm doing the fun part. 
And now comes the hard part, actually posting the thing and getting it out there into the universe. But you can help with that hard part by, you know, sharing the show with somebody that you like. Or don't like. Maybe you don't like the show and you actually want to wish it on your worst enemy. I don't know. <laughs> but with that being said, thank you so much for joining me here tonight on the Midnight Citizen Show. I hope you have a wonderful week. And yes, of course, remember to keep your eyes open. <laughs>